welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott Ox. And I'm Kamak, the provocateur. And Kamak, what are we doing this week? Well, Scott, we're going back really not that far at all. Just a handful of months, really. Yeah, we don't have the big journey uh, back in time like we do so often. We're going to talk about the 2020 Christopher Nolan blockbuster, Tenet. This is our most up-to-date film we've ever covered. It feels kind of weird to be almost the same year. Yeah, I know. I thought maybe we'd kick it off with like rhythm section when we were going to tackle the most uh, near future. But nope, we're going big, baby. Well, are we, though? Mm, excellent question. Are mm-hmm. we indeed? Mm. Well, um, there's a lot to talk about with this film. Really? <laughs> I, I, you say, I, yeah, are you saying a Christopher Nolan movie has a lot to talk about in it? <laughs> I mean, good or bad, controversial or not. Yeah, let, let, yeah, let's get into it. But, um, well, let's get the letterbox.com synopsis out of the way. Um This is a film about time travel, so hopefully it doesn't take too long to read it. Tenet. Time's run out. Armed with only one word. Tenet. And fighting for the survival of the entire world. The protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. I guess that's very accurate. Um... I mean, it, it, that is the epitome of the overview synopsis. Yeah, I'll take that. It doesn't give you anything, really, apart from time travel. But I think most people know that going into this. I like to think Christopher Nolan wrote it himself. I don't have a joke for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know you didn't see this in the cinema, Cam. Is that right? Uh, no, I watched it immediately the second it hit home video. Uh, when was that? Back in December. So... Um, yeah, I didn't make the trip out to the theater in my neck of the woods here, uh, during, obviously this movie opened during the pandemic. We'll talk about that when we talk about the box office, but, um, it was one I was just obviously dying to see. I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan and I pre-bought the 4k Blu-ray for the second it was released and watched it, I think maybe like a day or two after it uh, showed up at my door, because I remember it was supposed to show up right in time to my days off. And I was so excited because I could then kick off my, you know, couple days off from work and watch Tenet. And then it got delayed and showed up the night before I went back to work. (laughs) I was so frustrated. Well, then the important question is, did you mission through and watch it before work or did you wait until you were off? I waited, uh, I think a couple days or something. And um, it was a movie that I remember watching it and I enjoyed it the first time through. I was baffled by a lot of it. Um, And the sound mix of the movie, which I'm sure we'll get into later, uh, was problematic for my viewing experience because my TV had to be cranked fairly loud for me to pick up on um, the uh, dialogue a lot of the time. And yet the sound effects of, you know, the explosions and the gunshots and all that were so loud that I infuriated my neighbors. I was getting people pounding on, you know, their floors, my ceiling to turn it down. And I was watching it later at night, probably 11 o'clock at night or something like that. But um, that's the first time in my time living in this apartment that has been the case. Was was your Mr. Hinkles or whatever his name is from Friends downstairs banging on the roof with his broom? 
Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And I don't blame them either because even I was getting frustrated basically leaning forward to hear the exposition and then basically being blown back with an explosion scene. So, um, but overall, like I really did enjoy the movie. There was some, you know, issues I had with it, but in terms of the Christopher Nolan, you know, filmography, it makes a lot of sense. It falls very well within the, uh, you know, his filmography there. And um, it's just one that when I look at it, it's uh, at the time I felt it was, messier than say like a Dunkirk or an Inception even where the ambition comes through very clearly to the audience whereas I felt like this was one after the first time I watched it I'm like well this is going to take multiple reviewings to really piece it all together and even decide what I think of this movie in the larger picture. I'm glad you mentioned that and I'm going to pick up on that point later on about um, multiple rewatches. I actually did manage to see this in the cinema this was the only film I braved because for us in the UK, it came out in the summer and the R number or whatever it is you used to measure the coronavirus at the time was very low. Cinemas were open. And I went there full PPE, face mask, face shield, I think. And I felt like I was the uh, I was the guy in Back to the Future when he was in the suit, you know, when he's on the mm. planet Vulcan. Uh, I felt like I was like a beekeeper, basically. And it, that kind of detracted from the viewing experience, I have to say. Uh, and being conscious of being in the room with other people. And then you've also got the problems like the sound mix, as you say, and it requiring multiple viewings, which is something I really want to tackle later on. I definitely left the cinema thinking this is a really interesting concept, but not exactly convinced that he delivered. Yeah, like I think a lot of Nolan movies, the first time through, I can be blown away, whether it's The Dark Knight or Inception, uh, Dunkirk. I want to see them again immediately because of the experience being so incredible, but I don't walk out scratching my head going like, wait, none of that really made any sense to me. I need to see this again. I know a lot of people say Inception falls into that. That one didn't as much for me as this one. Um, Inception, I, I think there was maybe some few little details I wanted to go back and figure out, but the overall broader canvas made a lot of sense to me. And um, this one, that wasn't the case as much. It's the first one that I really felt you need a second viewing. I don't think a first viewing even does it. Well, with Inception, you had maybe that sort of, that last scene with the topper spinning around, does it fall? Is he yeah. dreaming? Is he not? And that's kind of that discussion point you can talk around the dinner table. That's interesting, I would say, because you still understand the story that got him to that point. This mm-hmm. one, you walk out scratching your head a little bit as to what you saw. And I had that, I, I'm, I'm referenced this theory a few episodes back. I can't remember what, movie we were tackling but the sort of ice box or the fridge theory when you get home and you you open the refrigerator to cook dinner and you just go like wait what 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 was that and why was that there and you just the, the whole movie falls apart in front of you and i felt like tenet did that to me at that time well it reminds me of a theory i was going to bring this up later but now feels like a good time to mention it um david hater who was a he's a screenwriter he wrote um he had a credit on the original x-men he also co-wrote Uh, Zack Snyder's Watchmen and I actually listened to a podcast with him when he was discussing Watchmen back at the time 2009 and they asked him you know why isn't the famous squid in the Watchmen film adaptation and his response was he said look we are asking the audience to accept a lot in this movie this movie is very complicated there's a lot of information we need to impart and he says I believe very strongly in the rule that Audiences will accept a lot, but if you go one thing too far, it kind of breaks their understanding of the movie. 
And part of me wonders if um, Tenet is a movie that for a lot of people, it kind of breaks their understanding of the movie because it's asking you to take in just one or two things too much. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, I hadn't thought of it in that way. And I always was a bit troubled when The Watchmen came out and I didn't see my squid. But that hmm. actually sort of makes sense. I, I understand David Hayter's perspective on that. And I actually appreciate why he changed it now. Hmm. Yeah, because the idea was that, yes, I'd read Watchmen. I knew Watchmen very well. You'd read it as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, but imagine you'd never read Watchmen and you're just walking into that movie and suddenly a, a massive squid's just landing with no explanation whatsoever. You'd be like, okay, now I'm really lost. I don't know what's going on in this movie anymore. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine they kept the uh, the Black Sails boat like comic book story inside the film as well. Well, they put that out as a DVD movie. <laughs> oh, that's fine. You can have director's cuts and, and us nerds yeah. will pick them up. That's not a problem. But uh, yeah, I imagine the general audience. I always picture like my mum going to the cinema and just being like, what was that? Sorry? Yeah. What? Why? And then, yeah, so yeah, that would not work. Yeah. Well, um, I guess that's what we thought about it last year. Before we get to what we think about it now, how did this film come to be? Well, like a lot of Nolan projects, this one was very veiled in secrecy. I remember when they announced that this was his next movie, they're just like, uh, espionage, uh, globe-hopping, you know, adventure film. And you're like, okay, that means nothing to me. Sure thing. Um, but Christopher Nolan said this was based on ideas he'd been formulating in his uh, genius brain for about 20 years. So this was a, a concept that I think made a lot of sense to him. And about, uh, you know, uh, six-ish years ago, he started truly developing it into a screenplay. And that would have been the year 2014. And he got a lot of advice from theoretical physicist Kip Thorne, who had helped him with Interstellar in terms of figuring out all the quantum physics of that film. And so he gave him um, a lot of information, which helped inform the writing of Tenet. Now, Christopher Nolan had said, this is the most ambitious film he'd ever made. Um, He has a good quote here. He says, it's a film of great ambition and great scale that takes a genre, namely the spy film, and tries to take it into some new territory and tries to take the audience on a ride they may not have had before and might not be expecting. Confusion. So, yeah, well, really, I mean, I think we'll have to uh, talk a little bit later in the episode about whether, you know, ideas that you've been formulating for 20 years translate to an audience necessarily when you've had all the time to figure them out. But uh, yeah, like there was very much the idea of, taking a very well-worn genre, the spy genre in this case, and giving people something that they'd never expected or anticipated or experienced in the past. So I appreciate the idea. Um, And one thing he did that differentiated from some of his past work is typically when Christopher Nolan is getting ready to make a movie, he gathers, you know, the cast and crew and screens a lot of films that he's looking to capture the energy of. Um, he's done that with pretty much all of his films. I'm sure he was showing heat to the cast of Dark Knight, for example. Um, but with this one, he said he chose to forego that process because he really wanted basically them to make a spy film from memory where we weren't like looking at touchstones. We were basically pulling from our memories. And he says, the reason was, I think we all have the spy genre. So in our bones and in our fingertips, I actually wanted to work from a memory and a feeling of that genre rather than the specifics. I, I I understand why he screened the films. That makes sense. I don't know why you would forego it for this film when understanding is such a critical point of this film. 
I think there was a certain amount of he just wanted sort of the ideas and these concepts just kind of float through people's heads and maybe without drawing to specific inspirations or influences. John John David Washington wasn't going to ad lib and be like, I'll have my martini shaken, not stirred. (laughs) (laughs) He's not going to go off script and just do that shit. It's his process. Who are we to question it? Uh, Well, that's Uh, true. Who are we? (laughs) Christopher Nolan said the one movie, though, that was a key influence was the Sergio Leone Western Once Upon a Time in the West, which may not seem particularly uh, obvious, but um, he said because it engages with genre in a heightened way. And that's what he was looking to do with the spy film, which was take a spy film and go beyond what a spy film could be and what and anyone would ever expect from one. Or should be. That's right. And so this was a massive production. It was a 500-person crew across seven countries. Um, very, very big production. A very expensive production as well. But Christopher Nolan, true to his style, used minimal green screen. He says he all he ever hears is actors complain about green screen work. He doesn't like to do it. So he liked to really jump all over the world and use as many great locations as he could. He also shot really fast. He said growing up doing independent films, he likes to work very quickly. So, um, you know, a lot of filmmakers would get really hung up on the details of a movie like this, where he is, he likes to just barrel through. And I just think he's a guy who honestly, his brain works in a way that most of ours doesn't. I think it's easy for him, but a lot of people couldn't do this. I always think of like the, uh, the Sherlock effect when they had all the mathematics appearing on the screen and that's just his his way of processing everything and we're just sat, sat there you know scratching our heads yeah like i remember reading a story about christopher nolan where um they talked about you know how he, he um for batman begins didn't really know um you know what the tumbler would be like so him and his brother just went into the um into the um the garage and just like built it out of models it's like okay sure they just created the tumbler themselves or I, I think, doesn't he like fixing watches or something like that? Or building clocks or something? I have heard that. I have heard that. But everyone's <laughs> got to have a hobby, man. It, yeah, his job is making films. My clock runs backwards. It runs in tenant time. <laughs> <laughs> you also can't see the time on it. It's, it's obscured by, you know, sound or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Well, the cuckoo clock is very loud. <laughs> it's like, blam. Uh, <laughs> 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 um couple other notable things um a pair of his key collaborators weren't available um Hans Zimmer who's scored a huge chunk of his films the big influential ones the Dark Knight trilogy Inception Dunkirk uh was not available he was doing Dune at the time um and he kind of had to make the choice but he said Dune was his favorite childhood novel and so he was way more focused on doing Dune than doing this film so I'm looking forward to hearing his score on Dune when it finally comes out I guess the timeline makes sense. It just, you know, one film's out and one film's not. Don't question it, just feel it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the motto of this episode, I think, going forward. Yeah, and his usual editor, Lee Smith, who he's worked with since way back to the start of his career, uh, he was busy doing 1917, the Sam Mendes World War I film. And so he brought in editor Jennifer Lame, who had worked on Hereditary. So this was the first time he'd worked with her. And I I am curious if we see her come back and work on future efforts with him or whether we go back to Lee Smith. People always have their like crew. They'll always get together if they can. I think he will go back to Lee Smith, as you say, if he can. But it's nice to have backups, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's sort of the behind the scenes. When you're talking about the making of a movie from so recent, a lot of the story hasn't really been told yet. Um, so often we're talking about 60s movies or 40s movies where all the anecdotes have come out in the years past. I don't feel like, especially with this movie being released during the pandemic, kind of the world of tenant discourse in terms of the actors, in terms of the filmmakers being out in the world talking about it has kind of shrank down. So I'm sure in about 10 or 15 years, we'll have a much richer portrait on the making of Tenet, but that's what we've got so far. Um, as for the box office, this was the movie that at least in North America was supposed to save cinema. And that became very controversial and that a lot of film studios, Marvel, for example, um, said, Hey, we're not opening black widow. It's not safe. And, um, you know, same with uh, the bond people and, uh, no time to die. Uh, whereas Warner brothers and Christopher Nolan really got behind opening this movie theatrically at a <laughs> maybe questionable time in human history. And so I, that's something that will always kind of be around this movie's neck, I think in terms of its legacy, but it was a very expensive movie. It had a $205 million budget. And that's before all the advertising and what have you. So this is a pretty costly movie. And domestically, it made $58 million. And international, it did better. It did 305 So it had a worldwide total of $363 million. That's, a, that's an absolute shame, I have to say. I have my... We'll get into my thoughts on the film. But uh, for a Christopher Nolan film to not make at least break even, because obviously you generally have to double the budget for for marketing that's uh, that's a real shame and i get this argument a lot on twitter and stuff people say we should release the films or we should put them out on bod you know like what disney are doing i'm not gonna i'm not gonna come down on a judgment on whether he should have released the film or not i don't know if you have anything to say on that point cam well the thing with christopher nolan is he is more than almost any filmmaker alive except for maybe a tarantino absolutely fixated on the theatrical experience. That's what he makes his movies for. He still likes to shoot on film as opposed to digital. I don't think that was ever going to be a discussion with him putting movies on a streaming service. So it was more the question, I think, in terms of his particular film and his relationship with Warner Brothers, whether it was going to come out then, during the pandemic as it did, or just put on ice until, you know, well, like, say, Black Widow, we don't know when it's opening yet. There's an argument to be made about them rolling the dice and sort of you know, credit to them for having a go and trying to save cinema, this uh, this big title that everyone gave Tenet. But at the same time, they were encouraging people to go to an environment that could also propagate the virus. Uh, and, you know, I went in a time where it was deemed safe to, to do so. And now they've closed down cinemas in the UK. You can't go and see a film now. Yeah, same here. Yeah, Um I'm not going to say whether it was a good idea or not, but I'm just not sure whether it was a smart financial choice either way. If he really wanted these films to come out in the cinema, I almost think it, it may have been worth waiting. The no time to die approach. Yeah. And I think Warner brothers and they like Warner brothers were the studio that was really hot on getting things into theaters. Whereas a lot of the other studios were just playing more cautious. I think universal immediately was like, okay, all our movies are delayed a year. Like they did not even really bother other than I think they put out Trolls World Tour, but that was also a theatrical slash, you know, video on demand day and date sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's very telling though, that when it came to Wonder Woman 84, which would have been opening after this movie, they just said, you know what, we're going to put it in theaters in Canada, basically, and some of the international markets, but 
domestically it's going right to HBO Max. Well, they because we don't have HBO Max here. Yeah, here either. Okay, fine. Okay, maybe you don't know, but is it you have to have HBO Max and then pay more like the Disney Plus approach, or is it if you have HBO Max, you've got the film? Yeah, you just have to have HBO Max. Whereas uh, I bought it off pay per view Wonder Woman eighty four. I watched it Christmas Day and I paid thirty dollars. Well, luckily, we'll probably never cover that film. So uh, was it worth it, Cam? You know what? Everyone hates that movie, but maybe because it was Christmas Day, I was like eating waffles and bacon and wrapped in a blanket on the couch. I kind of enjoyed my experience watching it. I didn't have the anger for it that a lot of other people did. Fair enough. I I think I've seen it. I can't really recall what I think about it. Yeah. So the box office for this year, of course, is Bananas because of the pandemic. The number one worldwide movie was The 800. Uh, What's that film? Well, it's a Chinese war epic directed by Hu Guan. It made $461 million. So props to that movie. Was it just released in sort of China and that way of the yeah. world? Or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's just, just a massive s- smash over there. Uh, number two was Bad Boys for Life with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence re- reuniting. Um, that was one of the, like... One of the handful of last movies I saw in theaters before, you know, the shutdown. Mm. And uh, it was, uh, I think it was better than Bad Boys 2 for sure. And uh, number three was My People, My Homeland, another Chinese film. Uh, it was an ensemble drama. Tenet fell at number six on that uh, top 200 for 2020. Right between Demon Slayer the movie, Mugen Train, which was a <laughs> Japanese anime film. Okay. And Sonic the Hedgehog. So that one people know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I saw a few films at the beginning of the year, as as did you. Our, our cinema shut down at the end of March, so I had ling- I had things like uh, Parasite, The Assistant, Invisible Man. I think that's about all I managed to get around to seeing. Oh, and Birds of Prey. Yeah, I saw all, all of those as well, and yeah. I was actually had plans to go see the Ben Affleck drama, The Way Back. Um, and Tyler and I, who was on our um, Three Days of the Condor episode, um. We were going to go to see The Way Back. We ended up canceling just because it was like, oh, things are getting weird. Let's bail. Mm. But that would have been the last movie we would have seen had we gone forward with it, the plans, you know, that night. Um, Some other notables just on this very bizarre box office here. Number 58, you had Interstellar re-release. So Christopher Nolan, um, they really made an effort to get a lot of his movies back in theaters during the pandemic. And Interstellar did the best of the group. Um, At number 104, you had My Spy, the Dave Bautista film. Down at uh, 113, you had the re-release of Inception. And at number 161, you had the Blake Lively spy drama, The Rhythm Section, which uh, made something like $5 million. It was a uh, not a hit. Not a hit at all. It opened in January, too, so it had like two months before the pandemic. <laughs> There's no excuses on that one, unfortunately. No. I can't wait to uh, tackle that movie, though, later down the road, because I think there's interesting discussions to be had about it. Um, the other notables... Right now, the Oscar nominations aren't out yet at the time of this recording. Golden Globes are, though. This movie got a Golden Globe nominee for Best Score for Ludwig Göransson, who came on board, obviously, and replaced Hans Zimmer. So props to him. Um, You know, the score is something people talked about a lot. And Ludwig Göransson is obviously on a high doing things like The Mandalorian right now. He did Black Panther. He did Creed. So he's definitely a composer on the rise. And uh, look forward to talking more about his work in the actual review section. But that about wraps up the making of and the box office for Tenant. I mean, we can always look back on 2020 and, and, and 2021 so far and be like, it's been a strange year. It's still strange so far. And it's definitely affected cinema as a whole. But I think 
the movie was still there. Uh, we could definitely talk about the film now, but uh, I think it's just a shame that this film came out at this year. Yeah, yeah. But um, okay, well, let's get to it then. We had both seen it before rewatching it for the podcast. Uh, Cam, you lead us off. What do you think about it going back in again? So I think I enjoyed this movie a little more the second time through because the first time much of it was spent going, you know, those, there's that, you know, clip of the, like Homer Simpson where something's being explained to him. And he's like, wait, what, wait, hold What's, what's this? And he's just get more information given. He just gets more and more confused. That was me watching Tenet the first time through where I remember watching probably the first half of this movie and being like, Oh, I don't know why people said this is so complicated. I get what's going on. I'm obviously a genius. You've said it before. And then, that's right. I've said it before. And then Aaron Taylor Johnson showed up and started giving information. And I was like, wait, what? And so the rest of the movie, I could almost not enjoy sequences that were being shown to me because I was so busy trying to figure things out. And the second time through, which was much more of that, okay, I know the end game. I know a lot of the details, but I don't depend, like, they don't all make sense to me, but I don't depend on them for my um, bearings the way I did the first time through. So I could kind of just relax more. And I found myself much more sucked into the world of the movie. Whereas the first time I was questioning a lot of it. Uh, I do think there are a lot of, I don't know that I could say logic issues. I just think this movie is perhaps overly confusing. And it's the type of thing that I think Christopher Nolan could probably explain to me on a whiteboard, but I don't know that he communicates it to an audience in a way that they can necessarily follow. Um, you know, there's a time travel movie called Primer that Shane Cruz made a handful of years ago. In- independent film, very low budget. Um, and it is also very complex. And it really does look at the mechanics of time travel. And I remember the first time I watched it being a little bit baffled. Seeing it at a mar- movie marathon and really enjoying it a lot more. But that is a, you know, 90-minute independent drama shot on a shoestring budget the audience that's going to that movie is looking for something unconventional and is more on that wavelength. Whereas I feel like a Christopher Nolan movie, people have been brought in through movies like Dunkirk and Interstellar, but I don't think they've been as confused as in this movie. And I think this movie really does push the sort of your limitations for how much you want to sit there when the movie's over and figure out exactly what happened, look up the details And so it's a movie I struggle with in that I know I'm going to watch it more. Like I really did enjoy the second time through, but it is a movie that when you ask me to get sucked up in the emotion of the film, the way that I think we can talk about a little bit later in terms of what Christopher Nolan movie has succeeded with in the past, it doesn't quite do that. And so a lot of it becomes more of a logical exercise versus a kind of swept up in the storytelling exercise. Yeah. I, um, as I said, the first time I watched it, I, I enjoyed it as a spectacle. I was a bit confused with some of the science. And I think going back to it a second time, it helped clear up a lot of the science. Yeah. Uh, I, I was able to, because I could sort of step away from trying to figure things out. I heard bits of dialogue I didn't necessarily hear before that would explain bits later on. And obviously you're seeing it from the angle that you know the protagonist is, is basically on like a slingshot into the middle of the film and then coming back on himself again. So, you know, the bullet at the start, the first inverted bullet makes more sense and it all flows through that. But one thing that sort of bothers me, I suppose we can get into it now because I, I enjoyed it on my rewatch. It helped me, helped me understand the film more. 
but I don't think films should take more than one watch to really get it. I I don't know. I think to me, it's more that the first watch you may not necessarily understand, but it should make you want to re, you know, rewatch it. You and I both really enjoy David Lynch movies. And when you get to movies like Mulholland Drive, for example, or Lost Highway, I don't know that you're going to walk out the first time and be like, I understood everything that happened in that movie. I think the movie's job is to convince you you want to go back and that you need to go back. And we've all had those movies where maybe we were a little confused, but you have that just that nagging feeling of like, I got to watch that again. I want to watch that again. It's not so much an obligatory feeling of like, well, I guess I got to go back so much as you are passionate about going back. And I think here he gambled a lot. This was a very expensive movie. He gambled a lot of money on a project that almost demands the audience keep going back to it, which is a, a real question mark when you look at movies like Primer or David Lynch films, which are definitely cheaper to make, that's for sure. Well, I, I literally wrote this down in my notes and I mentioned David Lynch in my own notes because to me, David Lynch films on the whole are kind of a surrealist, uh, you know, auteur-driven artwork type thing. Like people who go to see a David Lynch film at the cinema aren't expecting a popcorn film. Yeah. They, are, they know they're going to see it twice, three times a lady. That's understood. I think if you're going to see a Christopher Nolan film, the guy who made The Dark Knight, the guy who made um, Dunkirk, both very easy films to interpret and understand and ingest in the cinema with a bucket of popcorn, it's asking too much. Well, I think when you look at um, Inception, that's a movie that's it's complicated. When you look at a lot of mainstream entertainment, Inception is quite complicated. And I think it asks something of the audience. But I also think, you know, if you're, a, you're, you know, an average audience member who's sitting there and just paying attention to the movie, you're going to get carried along by it. You may not understand all of the technical um, information in terms of how the various time levels work in that movie, but you're going to get it. And I think moments like you referenced earlier with the, the top spinning, it's a conversation people can have that they can understand. Was he in the dream? Was he not? Right? Like that is the conversation. And then they can go back and say, oh, well, I think he was because, you know, yada, yada, yada. Whereas when I look at the end of Tenet, I just want to say right now, if you have not seen Tenet, just put this podcast on pause, come back later. This is not the way you want to visit the world of Tenet and the details of that world the first time through. The movie really should be seen before you listen to this podcast. And I, you know, that's the case for most things we cover. But a lot of the other movies we cover are older things people have probably seen already. This is not the case with Tenet, which is a fairly new release, so make sure to watch it. This this is not Condor Man. <laughs> but what is? <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I completely agree. I think you, you need to have seen this film and have some sort of opinion on it, really, to, to r- really get into the muck of figuring it out. But, yeah, as, as, as I was saying, I it's, it harkens back to what I said about the Icebox theory before. I, I don't think this film has some small problems that you can pick apart. I think it has massive structural problems that take away from the experience. I don't want to walk out of a film completely dumbfounded. And and that's not even taking into account some of this audio that's a bit all over the place. That's not taking into account the fact that there's not really any characters to root for. I mean, your main character is called the protagonist. I, I feel like Christopher Nolan just went, who cares about that? I've got a really cool concept to sell you. I don't need to name these characters. Don't get me wrong. You know, Elizabeth Debicki's character is, is fantastic and her arc throughout the film is actually really good and quite fulfilling. 
but everyone else the protagonist again there's nothing to him you don't care about his journey throughout the film uh neil kind of a confusing thing i didn't really understand what happened at the end until i saw it the second time and then you've Mm. got like mr exposition aaron taylor johnson turning up halfway through like you mentioned earlier on with the exposition squad and they didn't make sense to me i guess the only thing i had else that i enjoyed was kenneth branner kenneth branner is fantastic but uh yeah, like I was more on board with the protagonist and Neil as characters the second time through. What I did enjoy, even the first time though, was that the protagonist is kind of a snarky character. It's not what we would normally see in a spy film like this. Like he doesn't feel like they're just, I mean, I know Christopher Nolan loves James Bond, right? And he said actually shooting this movie, uh, this was the longest he'd been without watching a James Bond film because he didn't want them to get too, you know, ingrained in this film. But um I like that he doesn't just say like, well, here's my James Bond character. He's working in very like American snark, I find in this character. And I really enjoy it. Like scenes where he's sitting there making these kind of witty offhand remarks. I I just find this character very fun to watch. And Neil, um, I know that um, Robert Pattinson said he based this character on Christopher Hitchens, the writer, critic, and orator. Um, A lot of other film critics have looked at this movie and said he's clearly playing Christopher Nolan. Um, I don't know. You can make up your mind whatever you would prefer because a lot of other Christopher Nolan movies have Christopher Nolan characters in them. Um, Nolan has said he doesn't really pick up on this, but some of them are pretty unmistakable, especially when you look at Inception. But to me, it's a question of... This movie wants to present a globetrotting spy film in sort of the Bond mold. I mean, there's a lot of Bondian elements in this movie, a ton we can talk about. I mean... Even the whole Kenneth Branagh character has a real, like, almost like Largo in Thunderball kind of story going on with him. And the relationship as well with Debicki is a little bit of the domino kind of thing as well. Um, But this is a movie that's also asking you to watch a Bond adventure that work in broad strokes. Like, when I watch Octopussy, I don't understand the Fabergé egg element that well. But you get carried along on the adventure because you understand Bond, you understand the world of Bond. And so you kind of take a lot of things at face value. Same with like, you know, say the Wayne Newton money laundering plot, uh, side plot in License to Kill or um, the Diamonds and Diamonds Are Forever. But the problem is here, you know, there's a character Clemens Posey plays who shows up who says, um, you know, don't think about it, feel it. And that's the mission statement of the movie. It's Christopher Nolan's making it very clear. Don't think about it. Just feel this movie. But he's not dropping you in a familiar world. This is not like dropping someone in a James Bond world where we go, I understand everything that's happening. I may not understand the villain plot, but I know Bond's going to save the day. He's going to use gimmicks. There's going to be, uh, or gadgets, I should say. There's going to be a Bond girl, maybe an evil Bond girl as well. There's going to be, you know, kind of like a big action scene at the end. You don't really know what you're watching the first time through. And so you can't expect the audience to get their bearings based just entirely on faith because they haven't really seen a movie like this before see when she says that in that scene the sort of you know don't try to understand it just feel it and you're right i that is exactly what uh christopher Nolan wants you to do that would be absolutely fine if you had a character to latch onto but your lead character is so empty that I don't see how you could sort of superimpose yourself on this world. Even when he's being explained what Tenet is and what inversion is, and he's shooting the bullets back into the gun, he's just kind of like, all right. 
not like what what is this like going mad like i would if someone showed me this backwards nonsense he just seems to be kind of just shrug and so we just shrug and then the movie doesn't make sense and so you leave it kind of going ah <laughs> well to me i think this is where it separates the people that are really going to get hung up on this movie are like the real like film geeks right who are going to want to go back and analyze it time and time again and I think for me, it's a movie I will do that for because I I do enjoy this movie a lot. And I know we're kind of picking nits with it right now, but there's a lot I want to talk about that I really do love about this movie. But I think the one thing is Christopher Nolan has often been criticized as a very chilly filmmaker, um, almost Kubrickian in some ways. I think they're a little different in terms of their artistic aims, but in terms of their ability to um, to convey emotion on screen. Um, I think Christopher Nolan has had more success in the past. I think when you look at inception um i'm not going to say that we understand a lot about the uh you know um relationship between dicaprio and his children but we understand the wife one fairly well i think christopher nolan likes the idea of emotion more than actual emotion but i think it's worked better there where we understand the emotional hook more so in inception or sort of the band of brothers um aspect of dunkirk as well as the mark rylance you know, bringing the, 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 the common people on their ships across to save the soldiers, like elements like that bring emotion to it. Um, this one, you're right. The protagonist, there's really nothing. And there is a friendship at the core of this movie that doesn't really come across in an emotional way. And that's the relationship between the protagonist and Neil. I don't think they earn the emotional heft of an ending where they reveal that this friendship's been a big thing all along because I don't think it really works in the movie that well. I think the Elizabeth Debicki character is the emotional core and I think that's what you're supposed to latch onto. But it's also tough because a lot of it is about her relationship with her son and that is very threadbare. Like even the uh you know DiCaprio children stuff had more of an emotional punch to it at the end when you're getting him going back to his children at the end than what we see with Debicki, where it's a lot of talk about the importance of the son that we never actually really see that much. Yeah. Um, I think what we should probably do is spin off into things we liked about the film before. Yeah. We, I mean, there's tons and there's a lot to delve into. It's a two and a half hour film. So before we get to the cast, I mean, what are some of your highlights of the film? Well, I mean, let's just look at the scale Nolan's working on here and the set pieces. Um, I think, you know, the jet um, crashing sequence and slash the heist pulled on the Freeport is incredible. Like, and how that ties into a big action sequence with, you know, the protagonist fighting the inverse version of himself. These are incredible sights achieved on film through practical effects. Um, the car chase as well with the uh, convoy. I mean, you don't see this in most movies. This is incredible visuals at a scale you don't normally see. And to me, they enliven this movie so much. Even little moments like the bungee jump up the building. What about you? Like, what do you make of the action in this movie? Like, how much does that you know work for you in terms of making this a satisfying movie? I mean, as a spectacle, I'm so glad I got to see this film in the cinema. Mm. It looked fantastic. I, I wish I'd seen it in IMAX like Tom Cruise did. Um, <laughs> that's still a bizarre YouTube clip if you haven't seen it Tom Cruise sneaking into the uh, BFI on the South Bank in London just to watch this film crazy the best part is when the person in the audience says Tom what do you think he's like loved it can and... you imagine if he said anything other than that though that's just such a Tom Cruise answer loved it thumbs up 
Well, I just remember an interview. It was on Nerdist, I believe, back in the day with Tom Cruise, where he's like, I love film. I love every night just watching film. How he was talked about how consumed he was with it and the process and how he liked to screen movies constantly at home. And one of the hosts said, you know, like, well, like, have you watched anything lately that really blew your socks off? And he goes, I love all of them. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> do, do you think Tom Cruise used uh, the film showing his two and a half hours of sleep catch up? And no one saw it, basically. He's such a busy man. <laughs> no kidding. He must be tired sometimes, right? Yeah, he's got to sleep. If he's not shouting at his crew, he's sleeping. Although I feel like this is a movie that you would not sleep in because it's so loud. Sorry, I can't hear you again. It's, it's muffled. <laughs> um, no, I, as a spectacle, it's, it's fantastic. And I have to tip my hat to uh, Nolan for making a original film in a world of... Marvel universes, cinematic universes, you know, pre-existing IPs, remakes, reboots. This is a fresh story that is time travel plus spy plus thriller plus love story. It's fantastic. And you think, well done for getting this and made for 200 million from, you know, from Warner Brothers. That's a, that's quite a feat in, in, in this world of, of franchises. And in terms of action filmmaking, as much as we can say... The exposition of this movie gets very confusing um, and some of the actual plotting as we get, you know, to, especially in the back half of the movie. I don't know that there's many action moments that you're not clear on what's going on. You may have a little moment or something like that that's in the inverse. But I think visually, I always understood what was going on. Like, I understood like that someone's fighting the inverse version of themselves. Uh, I didn't know it was themselves the first time through. Or, you know, the convoy. I understand how that convoy heist is being pulled off. I don't think the action moments are particularly confusing, except for one um, that I know we're going to talk about. And you will note, people, I have not referenced it yet. I have not specifically named the sequence. Actually, there's two of them. There's two confusing ones, that actually. I'll just uh, maybe leave for a little bit. But I would say in terms of the big set pieces, you understand what's going on. Yeah, apart from the, the, the two you're going to mention, and for reference, this is the first time we're using video on our recording. And when Cam said that a second ago, that everything made sense through an action scene, my face just like tensed up and like a lemon face. Like, I can't believe he said that. But I know he's skipping a couple of things that we'll get to later. But the bits that do make sense are very easy to follow and very well executed. I'm, I wish I'd, I owned it on 4K Blu-ray. I probably will pick up a copy because I would like to see it in that glory again. I only saw like a standard HD copy that I rented to, to rewatch this. Um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Okay, we might as well just touch on the, the two uh, set pieces that I'm not as big on. Well, and it's, we're, doing, we're it, doing good stuff, Cam. This is the good I stuff know, section. I know, but we're talking about action. <laughs> let's just work it in. Okay, okay so okay. let's just start small. I think the opera sequence at the start is visually astonishing. I also really had no idea what was going on. <laughs> 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 okay i remember that moment actually was characters were mumbling so i turned up the volume and then there's that gunshot and i was like holy <laughs> jesus <laughs> and that's when the police turned up at cam's house yeah exactly um so th the entire concept of the protagonist being in some sort of i guess criminal group or something undercover for the cia getting a fake badge going into this opera place that's that's under siege from i guess actual terrorists and having to do something i remember being baffled and the second time through i was like okay i've seen this movie i still sat there scratching my head over it well it, it's it's satos people in there trying to get the piece yeah 
um, Kenneth Branagh's character, I should say. And yeah. um, but you only figure that out on like my third rewatch. I suss that bit out. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you first see that in cinema, you're like, "Oh, this is cool." You know, why, why are they falling asleep? Oh, gas. Okay, fine. But I didn't understand the direction or why anyone was doing anything. But it's it's like a Bond opening, straight into the action. You know, you don't know, need to know why Bond is attacking Blofeld, who's on a wheelchair. You don't need to understand it. You just know that's Blofeld and that's Bond. Good guy, bad guy. Go from there. That's fine. Yeah, in terms of the visuals, I actually think the sequence is great. Like I really was sucked in by it the first time. I was just genuinely confused by it <laughs> when it was all said and done. I was like, uh, okay, I feel like I'm missing the necessary pieces here, but sure thing. Um, but in terms of actually staging a pretty, you know, gripping action sequence, it's very effective. The one that is not so much is actually at the end. And wait, that's wait, wait, the wait. one that... Uh... Let, 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 let me introduce this better than that, Cam. I think we should okay. come at it from a temporal pincer movement. So I'll come at it from the end. <laughs> You come at it from the start and we'll just attack it from both ways, you know? <laughs> I'm not. I'm still not entirely unsure what a temporal pincer movement is. It sounds like something I would I'd do on the toilet in the morning after a coffee. But uh... <laughs> Whenever you say pincers, I just think of ants. So that's it, it's, all I can think of. It's movement for me. Like if you're doing a movement, you're, uh, you're off to the ladies' room, I think. But uh, Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, what a mess that final sequence is i second time through it actually made more visual sense to me like because the first time through i was literally like what am i even looking at like i literally have no idea anything that's going on period they were saying you know there's the the blue team that are in working in inverse and the red team that are going forward in normal time i'm like okay i should be able to follow this and then i could not i was just like almost looking at one of those old uh do you remember those um magic eye um uh posters where you had to blur your eyes to oh, get yeah. like yeah, a, yeah. a picture out of it you know a sailboat or something like that um i felt like i was looking at one of those where i was just like i have absolutely no idea what i should be looking at right now second time through in terms of the actual visual moment to moment sort of action beats i found it more coherent and i'm not talking about the larger picture i'm talking moment to moment i could kind of understand a moment but um it's still baffling. I, I don't understand this action sequence. It doesn't have any sort of momentum. And I think all the other action scenes, even the initial one that I said was confusing, that has momentum. This one, I'm like, I, I just, I don't understand. It's half is going, you know, one way, half is going the other. And that makes sense. And then there's that scene where they blow up the tower. One shoots the top, one shoots the bottom. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that did, people. I, I, I echo what you said. The second viewing helped, the third viewing even more. But you, know, you, you start off the scene with Aaron Taylor Johnson's character of Ives mumbly introducing what they're doing and talking about coming in, going back, red teams and blue teams. I feel like I'm back in Born Legacy again. You know. Hmm. Um, but then it doesn't help that you've got this bizarre action scene where people are running backwards and running forwards and you've got bad guys and they're all dressed the same in like clay-colored uh, camouflage. Even yeah. the bad guys are the same, basically the same camouflage. And so you've got three people, three groups of people shooting at each other. I, I barely know who's on which side. And you've also got massive face masks on everyone, like CBRN face masks, so you can't really hear the dialogue. And then you've got this score blaring on top, which apparently had Christopher Nolan breathing in it as well, just to, I don't know, 
as more sound levels. Great. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. More confusing. And I, I, I just, again, go back to thinking about what my mum would have made of the scene. She would be on her phone in the cinema at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, and when you look at some of the other climactic Christopher Nolan action scenes, you know, whether it's like the uh, the big Honor Majesty's Secret Service style, um, you know, ski resort sequence in Inception or... Um, you know, the, the big ending of the dark Knight rises with the bat, like, I think it was just called the bat. The, I always go to say the bat plane, but it was just called the bat, you know, flying after Talia al Ghul. These are all final action sequences. You can invest in because you completely understand how we got here, where we're going and what's happening moment to moment. And I think this movie asks a lot of an audience throughout, which I think is totally fair. I think if you want to establish rules of your movie throughout that are complicated, you have to deliver a finale to that that pays off their paying attention. And I don't think this does that. I think it's actually somehow more confusing, especially going back to the David Hayter comment about expecting an audience to pick up on one thing too many, you know, in terms of the giant squid. I think part of the problem here is too, they establish you've got red team going one way, blue team going the other. Okay. I think an audience can pick up on that. I think if you shoot the sequence maybe a little more, or maybe it's more editing, but put it together in a little more of a cohesive way, the audience can follow this and make sense of it. Um, but they don't really lay out very well what the mission even is, and I think that's a big problem. Um, but also, you have Robert Pattinson's character, who is going back and forth throughout this battle. He's like suddenly changing sides. So we've been told blue is going backwards, red is going forwards. But now we got a guy in blue saying, "Oh no, I just now I'm going normal. I've actually bounced back to the to the to the you know the normal timeline or whatever." And it's like, okay, this is asking people to ex- uh, accept a lot in a already confusing action sequence. Cam, Cam, you, you're trying to understand it. You've just got to feel it. Well, and it's okay, Christopher Nolan. I love the guy. Believe me, this you know while this movie may be somewhat messy in places. I am 100% in for his next project. I love what he does. And his entire filmography is fascinating to me. Um, There are tears, I will always say. There are tears for any filmmaker in terms of what are my favorites of their work. Uh, Tenet doesn't belong on the top tier. (laughs) That's more, uh, you know, Dark Knight, Inception, maybe Memento. Those are maybe the top three for me. Prestige? That's probably tier two for me, I think. And tier two is also incredible. That's like Dunkirk, Prestige. You know, there's a few in there. I think like bottom tier is maybe like insomnia and following, which I also like. And and tenant may fall on tier three or something like that. Okay. I'm sure he can yeah. get that with the millions and millions of pounds he's paid. Sure. Like this one falls more on the dark Knight rises um, sort of tier where they are kind of messy, but I still am engrossed watching them. Um, and I think the thing is going back to, as I said, the David Hayter thing, Throwing that um, Robert Pattinson character in there doing that really just makes this really baffling for people. And you should be, you should deliver something that pays off. I think the audience should be rewarded for paying attention. I agree. And that's not to mention, not only that, but during this entire confusing scene where you don't know really who anyone is, Robert Pattinson's reversing on the rules. You've also got cuts to Elizabeth Debicki's character on the boat with Kenneth Branagh, which as a scene makes way more sense. And as she has a lot more emotional stakes for the viewers you care more about what's going on there really has he sussed her out you know does you know they're both time agents at that point playing off each other it's a quite an interesting scene 
but it's just cut in with this explosions and fighting and then like it's just even more confusing because you're pulled away you don't even get time to really focus on what is happening in this battle scene you have to go straight to this emotional point and that doesn't even finish you go back to the battle scene again in many ways it's him trying to do a return of the jedi ending and that had the triple pronged action sequence where you had the emperor you know darth and luke you had the battle of endor with the ewoks and then you had the spaceship battles with um lando and what have you and those three action sequences are very clean they are very clear cut as to what you're watching and they're masterfully edited to edited together that's something that movie doesn't get i don't think enough praise for is its ability to edit together three action scenes that are all entirely coherent um it seems like that's what he's trying to do here now maybe the problem is um you've got two points of view on the big um pincer movement um sequence and that you're following it both from john david washington's uh you know um point of view as well as the robert pattinson one so that's two there that are kind of samey and they're also confusing. And so they are sort of overriding the Elizabeth Debicki one, which actually, even when I was watching it last night and I experienced this the first time, I wanted to watch that. That's what I was actually way more focused on was the Debicki, um, Kenneth Branagh story versus this pincer movement, which just left me baffled. I was so sucked in by the tension of this whole scene on at the yacht at the end with you know her basically plotting the murder of you know Sator, the villain. And I think that speaks to something I said earlier, is that unfortunately the, these three male protagonists, the protagonist, uh, John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Aaron Taylor-Johnson's characters, haven't really got much to them. Whereas we've had some sort of emotional investment in Elizabeth Debicki's character and in Kenneth Branagh's character because they have three dimensions to them. And you want to see them come to a head because there's such a hatred between them. And he's, you know, Kenneth Branagh, is, this is probably the most like, violent and angry i've ever seen him it's such a fantastic performance he's he is genuinely scary oh you didn't see him directing artemis fowl i'm sure he was like that every day on set (laughs) (laughs) i can't say i've seen that film it might be for the best by sounds of it i think it might be applicable to spy hearts actually god help us (laughs) we'll see you next week (laughs) yeah yeah, Uh, no kidding um but no i mean i also agree like kenneth branagh is hamming it up, but in a way that I find super fun where he is playing a Bond villain, but this is no ordinary cartoonish Bond villain. Like this is a deeply scary man. And I think Kenneth Branagh is really, really good here. I love him. And I know he's not going to get the praise for this performance because it is a little bit over the top, but this is a pretty iconic villain performance in that's, you know, saying something when you look at Christopher Nolan's track record with the Joker and Bane and, you know, some of these other great villains he's had in his franchises and um, also his, uh, you know, standalone films. I, I think in the pantheon of British actors playing Russians, the three I can think of that we've covered so far is Robbie Coltrane. Uh, yeah. I, I was questionable on his accent, but he kind of got by and we'll be talking about him again quite soon. And then we had on the other side, Michael Gambon, who I, I still can't figure out what that accent was. Kenneth Branagh knocks out the park. Oh, there was also Alan Cumming in Goldeneye as well. Ah, uh, yeah. Maybe he wins. He is invincible after all. <laughs> Slugheads. <laughs> is that a Christopher Nolan comment there? <laughs> um, no, I think like Kenneth Branagh is kind of genius in this movie. And, and uh, you know, he said um, there's a featurette on the Blu-ray where he says that he 
studied this script more than just about any script he's ever read in his life. Like he read it over and over and over trying to make sense of it. But Christopher Nolan gives him real props in that a lot of the time with villains, you're trying to present them. If you're an actor, you're trying to find the truth in what they're doing and present it in a way where it's, if not sympathetic to an audience, coherent in a way where they go, that makes sense for this character, what he wants. Whereas he said, he almost is asking you to not even sympathize in that regard to this man's plan in any way, shape or form. Like it is a cold, brutal performance that there's nothing likable about. It is not a Joker performance or Bane where we kind of laugh and take joy in some of their funny lines. Like Sator is a horrible, reprehensible character. Well, I think before we talk about the characters, it's funny you mentioned Bane because I remember when The Dark Knight Rises came out, there was a lot of people talking about the cut of that film and you couldn't understand what Bane was saying. And I think they had to like change the audio at the cinema release or something like that. Is that true? Uh, with Bane they did, yeah, because they had a preview they showed before Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, I believe. Um, I think that's the one. It was a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, that's what it was. And um, basically Bane was incoherent in that prologue that they showed. Mm. And so Warner Brothers was like, hey, you know, we got to fix this. We got to fix this for the actual theatrical run of this movie. And so they did. And so that's why it sounds like Bane is speaking through a megaphone from the room next to you as you're watching the movie. Um, yeah. So I think uh, Christopher Nolan copied his uh, Bane sound design for most of the uh, important scenes in this film. And I think a lot of people have spoken about that in their reviews since. And I think we need to kind of tackle it. Yeah, it's the sort of thing you kind of almost want to just say, well, look, everyone's kind of complained about this. What do we have to add? But I think it is so crucial to how you're going to experience this movie that I don't know that there's a way around it. And I will say... Last night, I watched it with the, uh, you know, my recording headphones. You know, I put on the Bluetooth on them and sat and watched it just with my headphones. And it was far easier to understand than it was watching it through the TV speakers. And I actually, at a certain point, said, am I just paying more attention? Maybe that's what it is. So I actually went back and watched a couple scenes through the actual TV audio. And the headset made a real difference for me. I've experienced that a lot with Blu-rays I've watched in the last few years where the mix seems to be, like you mentioned when you watched it, like the explosions are uh, incredibly loud and the talking is incredibly low. So you end up cranking the volume. And I don't have a surround sound in my house. I have my flat screen TV and the sound comes out of that. Same. Yeah. I'm not going to put headphones on to watch a film. I don't, I shouldn't have to in my own house. Well, and that's the ask of this movie is that if you want to enjoy it, I feel to the fullest extent, you're going to have to go with probably headphones um, or also subtitles. I think subtitles for some people will be necessary. And is, again, that asking too much? I think it is, honestly. I think it genuinely is. When you have important information being conveyed, um, not just explosions, but there's the scene where they're on the boat and she tries to kill Sator, Elizabeth Debicki's character, tries to kill him. Um, there's information conveyed in that sequence that is pretty much indecipherable if you're just watching it through normal audio i mean there's a the scene on the boat before that before they get to the pincer movement and they explain kind of sator's big plan and i completely didn't hear a word of that in the cinema release i i mm -hmm. had to wait until my second viewing to to put the captions on and watch it and figure out now i know what he wanted to do with his plan to end the world but you kind of need to know that for the whole ending to make sense why are they trying to stop this MacGuffin from being dropped into a hole right I don't know when I watched it in cinema. Another reason to check out. 
Yeah, and the thing is, this movie is taking a lot from the Bond franchise, and I think that's why it is so enjoyable, is that it does the sort of the broad strokes spy story with such style and ambition that, to me, it's engrossing, and it makes me want to figure it out. But, you know, when you look at the Bond films, um, there's a twist to the villain's plot a lot. A lot of these movies, you know, in the Bond franchise, have a twist with the villain's plan, which happens here as well. And I think that the problem is, is that they're pulling this twist on you when you have misheard a lot of the information and you're also being overwhelmed with technical information. Yeah, I think it all goes back to what David Hayter said, actually. I'm glad you found that sort of quote because it, it really does ring true with this film. And uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I, I think we've tackled the sound design as much as we can. We can't change it. What more can we say? There was one other thing I want to say about the sound design, actually. The character I found who suffered the most for this was the Aaron Taylor Johnson Ives character. I remember the first time through watching that scene and where he's talking and explaining things, I literally could, like, could barely understand him. Is that the one when they first do the inversion or the one before the battle? Well, let's be honest, it's both. <laughs> it is. I wonder what you'd say, that's all. I mean, and you mentioned the spy story before. That pivotal moment where he actually inverts for the first time, the protagonist inverts to try and save Elizabeth Debicki's life, is where I think the spy story ends. And we don't, we don't often talk enough about, is there a solid spy story? Because it's kind of a given in the films we, we tackle, except for maybe the Men in Black films. But mm. there is a solid spy story in here. But I think as soon yeah. as he inverts, it just starts to chip away. Because you, you lose reality, and then you also don't know what's going on. It's not like a Bond film where you, it's kind of a wacky film and it's not trying to be serious most of the time. Because I think the, the, the Craig films generally are quite a easy to understand plot, except for maybe Quantum of Solace. Um, whereas, like, you know, as you say, Octopussy doesn't really make sense. But then seeing Roger Moore driving through in the middle of, you know, India in a tuk-tuk, that's fun. Yeah. And to be fair, this movie's a lot of fun as well. It's just that it's piling on far more than those films ever would. And also, I think Christopher Nolan, it's a conversation maybe we should have just briefly before we go into characters too, is that when we had the Mission Impossible guys on to talk about the Bourne um, Ultimatum, they talked about that movie as being a dumb smart movie or a smart dumb movie. I don't remember which uh, order they put those words. But um, Christopher Nolan is a, a filmmaker who, when you look at his filmography, um, these are, I feel, higher level of what you would normally see in a blockbuster. Like he is aspiring beyond that. But are they smart movies? And it's something I think we look at him and we go, he is an incredibly smart guy. Like this is, uh, borderline seems to be a genius, especially compared to me who doesn't understand quantum physics to save his life. Like I am not a physics student. So the fact that he just enjoys dabbling in quantum physics, good for him. But um, are his movies as smart? And that's where I'm not sure because a lot of it feels like in a case like this, I don't know that it's smart so much as just constantly throwing information at you. I don't know. Well, I think with the Bournes, a lot of the stuff is made up. Blackbriar, yeah. Treadstone, whatever. It doesn't make sense. It's nonsense, really. You know, larks, whatnot. But at least I think the science in this pretty much holds up. It's like, it's, well, it's had a, a scientific advisor on the film. It probably is quite a smart film, and I'm sure... Some physicists would really enjoy watching this film because they're like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that all that all adds up. But neither of us are physicists, as you point out. 
And even, you know, as a young man, you said you were a super genius. You you have now grown to understand that you're not. Um, I think it is just too much. And I, I think it is a smart film. I don't think it's a dumb smart film. Because I think the audience is along for the the ride when you talk about the inversing. I think actually an audience can accept that. But when you start throwing around terms like temporal pincer movement, that's where people are going to start to get confused, as well as the whole MacGuffin with the... Um, Algorithm. What's it even called? The, the algorithm. You start throwing the word algorithm around, a lot of people like me go like, uh-oh. <laughs> the eyes roll back and it's like, oh, yeah, there we are. Sleep time. <laughs> yeah, it's just maybe one term too many, like, or, or maybe a couple too many, where I think like Christopher Nolan, all this makes sense to him. But it's he's such an odd guy in that we look at him as having this you know, great intellect he's bringing to his films. But when you read interviews with him, he loves the Fast and Furious movies. He loves the Transformers movies. Um, he, he really does love like just big, dumb blockbusters a lot of the time, and he'll reference them constantly. And so I often wonder if he's bringing his level of intellect to movies that in many ways are big and grandiose in the way a Transformers movie is, but just trying to pepper it with so much, you know, as you say, real world science that the two things kind of clash where you're trying to get sucked up in the sensation while also being peppered with math questions. Do you really want to go to see a Transformers film with, with Mark Wahlberg talking about temporal pincer movements and explaining science to you? The whole reason you go see those Transformers films is because you want you want fast food cinema. I'll call it that. It's sure. easy to consume, probably not very good for you, but you enjoy it whilst you're there. And that's it. You walk okay. away and you're done with it. You don't need to think about Transformers Dark of the Moon. I don't think anyone did, even when they were writing it. Hmm. But I I think this is a smart film, to, to get back to your point. I think this is a smart film, but I think it asks too much of the average cinema goer. Um, but I think, you know, we've been talking about this film for quite a while and we need to sort of yeah. single out the actors and just talk about some of the main cast performances. We'll start at the top. John David Washington as the protagonist. I've already sort of alluded to my thoughts on it being kind of an empty character. Yeah. But I think he does I think he does as much as he can with what he has. Yeah, I mean this character has strokes against him right off the bat in terms of the actor being able to bring this character fully fleshed to life and that he doesn't know what's going on. I mean, Jason Bourne doesn't either, but Jason Bourne ha- at least has an idea and is able to learn whereas a lot of what the protagonist finds out comes right at the very end of the movie where it turns out that he's the one that started the Tenet group and is the one who's created the entire mission. That's like a rug pull at the end that I don't think lands with the way the top potentially tipping over in Inception does, where the audience goes, oh, I think more when people, you know, experience the scene of him saying, I'm the protagonist, the audience goes, huh? (laughs) Well, firstly, this is not an M. Night Shyamalan film. No. Uh, it, it doesn't have that twist ending. And to be fair, is it the end or is it the beginning? I don't know. Well, yeah, he does kind of pull that out though as like a reveal. And I think the problem is when you have this character who doesn't understand where he is, and in many ways he is the audience avatar, because if he doesn't understand, well, the audience sure doesn't understand either. So they're following along with him as he learns things. So I, I get it in that respect. I think what you're looking for more here is, and I think this honestly applies to the Pattinson role in a lot of ways too, is, these two characters um, are very much being driven by the plot, 
but how much do you respond to the movie star charisma? Pattinson, obviously, much more of a known quantity because of, you know, obviously the Twilight films and some of the great acting work he's done in the recent years in movies like uh, The Lost City of Zed or The Lighthouse. Um, he brings a lot of talent to a movie like this. So the audience kind of perks up when he walks on screen. John David Washington had done Black Klansman, where he's really fantastic, but he's not quite a movie star. But I think this movie, the joy I get from his performance and from Pattinson is these injections of movie star charisma in roles that are a little undefined. In terms of the action set pieces, they play their parts well, and they make it they make it believable in, in what the the scene that you're in. I can buy him fighting himself in inverse. That looks great. Um, I just there was nothing on the page for him to really sink his teeth into in terms of a character. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with other leading roles down the line. But this one is not going to be on his resume, I don't think. Do you think this could have been improved in some ways with a more fun relationship with the Pattinson character, like more of a buddy relationship versus what we get here, which is acknowledged as friends, but they feel like kind of strangers to each other in a lot of ways. I feel like the the relationship between the two of them needs to be kind of estranged to have that revelation at the end. I think for that revelation to work better, you need to care more about the protagonist. Maybe give him a name. Steve, for instance. Let's call him Steve. If Steve had a backstory and maybe like, I don't know, an inverse bullet killed his friend at the opera house instead of saving his life. So he's got an investment in what Tenet is and and stopping the inverse, stopping the entropy, the reverse entropy, I should say. Then you've already got something to latch onto, but he's just, he's just a protagonist. He kills himself or tries to, and then he's told, right, you need to go do this mission. Okay. And did we just go, yeah. okay. And I think they want you to um, glean something from his relationship with Elizabeth Debicki's character, Kat. Um, and I think it it's sort of functional and that I buy that he wants to help her. I, I don't think it's like a clunky relationship on screen. I just don't think it hits with that emotional strength. You want to have that moment of sort of, um, you know, uh, what's the word from um, they talk about in inception at the very end, you want to achieve catharsis. That's right. Mm-hmm. You want to have that catharsis at the end when all of this is pulled off. And I just don't think you get that. And I think the Debicki character and the relationship with him, and I'm not asking for a romantic relationship. I kind of like that this movie doesn't go that route, but maybe more of, you know, he he seems to want to help her escape from the situation, but it's done in the most chilly of terms possible. And also, if we're nitpicking on, on this part, is if he's willing to kill himself for his country, for the CIA, I think it is, why is he sacrificing his mission just to pull her out of a car? Um... Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, I, I, it's one of those fridge, fridge, icebox questions. Like I mentioned earlier, you get home and you go, "Hey, wait a minute." Here's a question for John David Washington, who I, I do enjoy in this movie. Um, do you think it was almost unfair to take an actor who's just coming off, you know, Black Klansman, his breakthrough, and giving him a character like this that it's just like you need to just inject personality yourself because it's not really there on the page. Like it feels like the type of thing you hand to someone who's really well-trained in sort of that movie star charisma. And his father is Denzel Washington. So maybe they were like, okay, he's, he would have studied under one of the greats. And so, I mean, um, maybe they were just hoping for that, but I, I do think it's some ways unfair. And I think he pulled the fact he pulls it off 
reasonably well is a testament to how good he is. And I can't wait to see him, as you said, in other things going forward. I, I have no criticism for any of the acting in this film. I just My criticism is for the, the screenplay, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And that's where it falls down. I think he's great in what he does, but he's not given enough to care. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll... I, I'm going to sort of bunch Robert Pattinson and Aaron Taylor-Johnson together. Yeah. Although if you want to separate them, we can. But I just feel like they're both short-served characters that probably aren't given enough to flesh out and you don't particularly care about either of them. Well, I mean, Pattinson's character is, as you know, the Washington one as well, is just all movie star charisma. Mm. He needs to be the guy that helps guide the protagonist through this world and manages to do it in a way that's entertaining. And I think Pattinson pulls it off because he has funny lines. His, I mean, Pattinson is a weird actor. And I love that whole scene at the end where he's, t- or near the end, where he's talking about the grandfather paradox, but he's also falling asleep at the same time. There's just like weird performance moments of him that I think bring this movie to life when he's on screen. And, you know, I know a lot of critics said they would have liked to have seen him as the lead, but I think you kind of want that avatar character in some ways. I think he's more valuable as, you know, the trained agent kind of bringing someone in, but uh, I mean, it's a really fun performance and I would love to see him given more of a showcase role in a Nolan movie versus here where a lot of it is functional stuff. Yeah, he, he's propelling our protagonist through the film. Yeah. As for uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, I don't know. Is he a character? Like, I've liked Aaron Taylor Johnson and things in the past. Um, Nocturnal Animals, he was, boy, was he memorable in that one. Um, but, uh, I mean, this isn't a character. It's like, show up and give exposition. Like, that is it. It's something I remarked on when I saw the film in the cinema originally. It feels weird that they've got someone with, I don't want to say the stature of Aaron Taylor Johnson. He's done some big films. But this feels like a role that should be going to an actor that's just getting started because he doesn't have much to do. He's just saying words. Do you want that or do you want a star? Because I'm thinking of some of those old World War II movies where they would trot out a famous character actor whose job was to explain the mission. And that's what gets people to pay attention. Kind of like the... Mike Myers giving the mission briefing in um, Inglorious Bastards. Like maybe just when you're giving that exposition, they want a movie star to do that. But then you've got Michael Caine in this film for that very reason. Have him do it. Well, that's also true. Yeah, I unfortunately get to see Harry Palmer again. I mean, you have a lot of exposition characters in this because you've also got Dimple uh, Capadea, um, or Capadia, perhaps, as Priya. Um, I apologize if I'm mangling that name. But um, she is a arms dealer? question mark that is also tied into this thing and she spends most of her scenes giving exposition as well yeah and then getting shot for it spoilers yeah because he's the protagonist yeah exactly not her um okay i think the two characters i i want to talk a bit about before we start to wrap up is and i've mentioned it before elizabeth debicki and kenneth branagh i've said they're both the most three-dimensional characters i stand by that their arc throughout the film i care more about than anyone else and I, I have to tip my hat to both of their performances. They knock it out the park. It makes me want to see more of their work. And I remember seeing Branner in um, Murder on the Orient Express recently, yeah. which is a really entertaining film. But I didn't see him go as intense as he does in this film. And this is like a next step for him, for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been campy and over the top in the past. I think of like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for example. But um, um yeah, what he's doing here is sinister. And I think a lot of what Washington and Pattinson um, are doing in this movie is featuring in scenes 
that kind of have a life of their own. They are the big action scenes. They're the moments that the audience is going to get sucked into because they are, you know, spectacle on a scale you can't imagine, really. Just, I mean, the money is all over the screen. But when I look at a lot of the scenes with Debicki and Brana, it's two actors trying to create sequences with the same type of tension as these multi-million dollar action scenes, just with the two of them facing off in a room. And I think they really achieve it. You know, um, there's that scene where after she's tried to kill him on the sailboat, they're in a bedroom and he's like taking off his belt and attaching like um, cufflinks to it. That scene, I was on the edge of my seat during that scene, if not more so, definitely more so with the temporal pincer movement finale, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) probably equal, if not more so than the convoy sequence, for example, in that scene, because it is so, so tense. Yeah. I, and I just think about the, the ticking time bomb, Alfred Hitchcock style scene in on the boat at the end, you know, has he figured out that she's a temporal agent has she sussed it all out yet? She has to wait to kill him until they defuse the what's a majiggy. Um, such a great performance in both of them, and and then tying it back into her seeing herself jump off of the boat, and you know she says she wants to be that woman. She is that woman. She becomes that woman. That's great writing. So he's shown Christopher Nolan has shown he can write good character arcs in this film. He just doesn't seem to do it for anyone else. Yeah, uh, I mean, and I love that he plays with height in this movie a lot. Like, Elizabeth Debicki is extraordinarily tall. There's actually a really fun Vulture article. Um, It was written by Hunter Harris. And it's kind of a review of the movie, but it's done all from the point of view of examining the height of Elizabeth Debicki and how this features in scenes like when she's in the backseat of a car and kicking open the door of the car from the front seat, from, from the back with her feet. Because, like... Most people can't do that. They aren't that tall. But you have these scenes where she's paired opposite Branna. Branna is not a tall man. But you can see that this character, he's playing with this height, you know, Nolan is, in the, the sense this character almost has that, like, I need to dominate this person who is significantly bigger than me. And you get that interplay in these scenes, and it is so tense. And Kenneth Branagh has that scene where he, like, screams, like, look at me i'm a lion or a tiger or a bear oh my whatever it was i can't remember but (laughs) a jungle animal of some sort i think it was a a tiger but um it's just like a guy who's trying to dominate all these things bigger than him whether it's debicki or the world at large it's really incredible yeah i i wish there was more characters like these two in the film that's all I, i think i'll say yeah, and I know Debicki, they said, got the role after um, she was in the movie Widows, which is a really fantastic movie. And um, it was originally, they said, written for someone a little older, but they loved her so much in Widows that they gave her the role. And um, it is a great performance. Like, I really enjoy her a lot in this. And I know that some people have taken issue with kind of being written in kind of the, well, she's sad mode. But I think she brings so much to this character that maybe a different actor wouldn't have succeeded with. But I think you walk out of this movie far more invested in her journey and especially her finale. I mean, when she shoves Kenneth Branagh off that boat and he smacks off the rail, <laughs> that may be the biggest crowd-pleasing moment in the entire movie for me. That is the uh, on-your-left Avengers Endgame moment where they come out the portals. Yeah, yeah. It's- glorious i love it i love it so much yeah i've been constantly uh impressed with elizabeth debicki uh since seeing her in the man from uncle like our fourth episode she was she was fantastic in that 
she's really fun in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Yeah, she's great. And didn't I think she just had a, a film come out on Netflix, Pieces of a Woman? Okay, yeah, I haven't watched it. Yeah. I, I've heard it's great, so I'm I'm gonna go watch it after this, just from her performance alone. She sold me on just seeing more of her, so that's great. Uh, is there any other characters you want to touch on? I don't think so, but actually, I want to just touch on one thing with the Brana character, which is that we haven't mentioned this aspect of the plot, which is that he is in conversation with um, the humans of the future. And this movie has a very, you know, there's definitely an ecological message. It's about climate change and uh, the sense that um, because the people of the past have destroyed the world, the people from the future are going to, uh, well, destroy them, basically. And they're dealing with the Kenneth Branagh character. What did you think of the way the movie dealt with this villain plot and tying it to these people from the future? It felt a little Star Trek Enterprise in the temporal Cold War to me, which I don't know whether I appreciated or disliked. Maybe appreciated, actually, now that I think about it. But did it work for you in terms of a, a villain motivation and sort of the baggage that comes with that character? Well, there was no holographic future guy, so I was happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it it worked for me, but only after three viewings and really getting to grips and having to Google, like, what is his plan? It, it took me a long time to figure out that, like, his dying would make them trigger the algorithm because he wanted to sort of say, F you to the world. You've killed me with cancer. I'm going to kill all of you. And he says the line to Elizabeth Debicki earlier on, like, if, if, if I can't have you, the world can't have you. And he, he means the same thing for the world. If the world doesn't want me, then you can't have the world. I'm going to take it from you. And yeah. that, that really worked. And he, he, he communicated that message as well as he could, but the rest of the film didn't do anything to make it stronger. You, don't, you have to watch it two or three times to really get to grips of this you know, ecological message, this future message. Uh, and I, again, I, I said this at the beginning of the episode, I don't think you should have to watch a film three times to understand the plot. Yeah. Even in broad strokes, you shouldn't have to go read articles upon articles just to get a, a, a firm idea of what happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it should be noted, too, that this one, um, and I, the data is a little skewed because of the pandemic, but this was one of the lower scoring Christopher Nolan movies with audience scores. I think it got a B, I think. I think I'm remembering that correctly, which a B is actually quite poor with audiences. Most people, the average moviegoer they tend to find, walks out of a movie and they say, what do you think? And they go, loved it. Great. You know, it gave me what I wanted, essentially. You know, you walk out of a Marvel movie, they're usually going to get A's on cinema scores, for example. Um, This one, when you get a B, a lot of those people, I would guess, would be showing up because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. They've probably enjoyed Inception, The Dark Knight, what have you. And they didn't really love this one coming out. So I, I do think that that is an element, that it was just a little too much for people. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I do have like a final question for you, Cam, but do you have anything you want to wrap up with? Um, there was uh, a couple things, just in terms of Nolan's action direction. Um, we've known he can do large-scale stuff for a long time. You know, the, the truck chase in Dark Knight leads very well into the convoy sequence in this movie. But in terms of his fist fighting in movies, that has definitely taken a journey because you watch those fist fights in Batman Begins, my goodness. <laughs> Try to follow what is going on in those sequences. And you compare that to where we are with Tenet, where he has the kitchen fight with John David Washington fighting off a couple of Satyr's goons um, with a cheese grater, notably. Um, it is very well shot, clean cut action. It's really fantastic. I can't say I noticed enough to sort of balk against it. So I must have enjoyed how it was shot. I don't really remember Batman Begins that well for being badly staged in terms of fight scenes or badly shot but I'll, I'll take your word for it 
on that one. But mm-hmm. I, I have no problem with the action itself in this film. I just I think some of the bigger set pieces are messy, as we as we touched on. There was also one scene I just wanted to ask you about. Your maybe your uh, experience watching it the first time, which is the moment where the protagonist is captured and he's in that red room. And then in the other side, you've got the blue room and they're facing each other through the pane of glass. And Kenneth Branagh is talking backwards to him while also playing audio forwards. Were you as baffled as I was the first time watching that sequence? Absolutely. I was, I I didn't know whether it was like being in two masks and just being like surrounded in, in plastic that was making it hard to hear things, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. I knew it was all backwards. I, I knew like seeing the trailers, there was you know inversion and there was backwards stuff. I knew what I was getting into. But even then I was like, what is this nonsense? Yeah, like also with the audio issues with the movie that the first time through, I'm like, maybe I just don't understand them because the audio is kind of a mess. Um, I, I will say the second time through, it hit way better. And that's the thing with this movie. It's such a tough movie to grade because like as someone who feels that compulsion to rewatch this movie... After I've seen it, like, I don't know, five or six times, what is my takeaway from this movie versus where it is now, right? Like, that's the thing. It's such a head scratcher. And look, a lot of people will watch this movie once and that's the takeaway. You know, I didn't like that movie. It was confusing. I don't want to watch it again. And for a lot of people, that's fair. I completely think they are, have a right to that opinion. Um, but for me, it's like, <laughs> if you ask Cam, you know, 10 years from now, what he thinks of Tenet, what is his take? What is his take? Well, I guess I could ask him. I'll meet him in about five years. That's it. That's it. When we uh, you, Are they sending you backwards to save the end of the world? Yeah, it's the temporal pincer movement. We get to meet up in five years to determine exactly what I think of this movie in 10. I can't wait to do an episode of this podcast with you and you in the future. <laughs> It'll be unbearable. Or is it in the past? I don't know. Now, here's the question. I feel like if I uh, met myself, I would probably hate myself. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Oh, I hate you, and so yeah, two years would be yeah. insufferable. Uh, I, uh, yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think I'd kick you both off the show and just do it myself at that point. <laughs> or we're the best of friends, and we're like Scott, you're not needed anymore. <laughs> I'm Agent Cam, and I'm Cam the Provocateur, <laughs> and we're like on a seesaw, <laughs> going back and forth, like uh, just professing your love for David Lynch films. That's right. But I was going to say, actually, speaking of David Lynch, the reason I actually brought up that confusing sequence with the red and the blue room was it reminded me of David Lynch. Um, David Lynch loves his red and blue lighting. And I thought this movie very much exploited that. And I suspect Nolan's a fan of David Lynch as well. Uh, he has to be with all this backwards talking and stuff like that. He, he's definitely watched a few episodes of Twin Peaks in his time. Cause I, I had this final question for you, and but you actually just sort of asked the question already. And I, I was kind of jumping for joy when you did, which is what is the takeaway? I thought your question was going to be, what is the budget of Tenet in terms of the organization? (laughs) But you have a better question. (laughs) They've got the card. They'll bounce the books later. It's fine. Um, No, like you talk about Inception. You know, you've got the spinner at the end. Is he in a dream? Is he not? You talk about, um, you know, the Dark Knight. You know, the implications of, of good and evil with the Joker. There's all kinds of Nolan films like to have these sort of lingering questions for discussion afterwards. Does this film give you a question to walk away with? Or is it just too confusing that you just walk away scratching your head? I think the thing about this movie is um, Nolan loves puzzle boxes. You know, that's a big part of his movies. His logo for his company is actually like puzzle outlines on it. So I think the thing with this movie is the conversation that people have is trying to figure out the puzzle of the movie. 
Um, I don't know if it's giving you a bigger picture to really talk about, you know, in terms of Inception, sort of the concept of dreams and everything. I don't know that it gives you that much. I don't know that people are going to have conversations about the inversion of time. Um, Nolan probably does. But other than that, I don't, I don't know. The movie does bring up things like the grandfather paradox. You know, if you kill, you know, um, if your older self kills your younger self, are you alive? So I think maybe they're floating things like that to give people something to talk about within what the movie's giving you. But it's such a busy movie. I don't know that that's the takeaway that all but the most uh, dedicated tenant watchers are walking away from or walking away with. See, the thing with the grandfather paradox is the film says, don't worry about it. Yeah. So then I don't. That's also true. It says, oh, it's too confusing. Whatever. Shrug. I I just wish it had like a, a walk away question because, as you say, it mentions the, you know, the environment falls apart in the future should we try and save it now maybe that's the thing but I, i'm just left with questions like what if i met the inverted scott what would that be like what would i do what would i change that's kind of cool but the the, the, mm-hmm. the film isn't make is, isn't asking those questions like what would you change about your own history it isn't doing any of that sort of stuff because it says it's all fixed point in time no like he really is in some ways embracing more the concept of the james bond espionage film where it's style over substance mm. But the problem is he gives you the illusion of substance so much and injects so much science stuff that it kind of disrupts that. Like you can't, it's tough. I think, I don't know. Maybe some people can, maybe some people could just enjoy it as a broad strokes, James Bond style adventure. And I hope they can, because I, I would like to think anyone could get something out of this movie and appreciate it for the amount of scale and ambition it has. Um, but it kind of, it doesn't, it, you don't look to a Bond film for those types of questions. Um, but I think this movie, because it's Nolan and because of his past work, we're looking for those questions. And I, he sort of seems more half-hearted in giving them in this movie than it may be previous for, uh, films. Which is fine. It's not his responsibility to do that every time. I would just ask one last question is, before we get to the knock list, if this film was released in 2018, is it doing better? Oh, yeah. Um, Christopher Nolan's movies, pretty reliable. You know, Dunkirk made $527 million worldwide. Um, and that's, you know, World War II movies. And, and World War II movies don't traditionally do well. So he is a brand that sells. I don't know that Tenet is a... It's not an Inception, probably, or a Dark Knight, you know, going even a step further. Um I think it probably does the sort of like interstellar business would be my guess. Maybe, maybe close to a Dunkirk, although Dunkirk had also like a big awards push kind of, you know, prestige level attached to it. (laughs) Pardon the pun. I don't mean the film prestige. I mean more in terms of it being a movie people were looking at as a real Oscar hopeful. Um, So I think, I feel like it would probably fall more in an interstellar, which I would be curious to, if you ask the average moviegoer who's watched his movies, how much they're going to mention Interstellar in comparison to, you know, a Dark Knight or an Inception. Interstellar kind of confused me too, to be fair. That took a couple of viewings yeah. to get down. Actually, I have one question before we get to the knock list. And that is, this movie is confusing. It demands a lot. Um, financially, not a obviously a, a big earner because of the pandemic. But does this affect Christopher Nolan's films going forward? Like, was this a step too far in terms of things of his muddy sound mixing, his uh, very confusing plots. Like, is there more studio pressure to ease back on this with the next one? I feel like there will be more pressure 
on the product he puts out. You talk about how Bain had to, they had to change the audio mix for Bain because of the feedback. I can imagine if I can imagine when this was played to people and they said Tenet it sounds awful. He goes, "Nope. I made Interstellar." Yeah. You can't touch me. And so they just went, "Okay, okay, Christopher Nolan, put the film out." I imagine if this sort of feedback comes back on the next film, he doesn't have a leg to stand on, he'll have to make changes. I mean, the audio issues were brought up in pretty much every review of the movie. It was such a widespread element of the discourse on the movie that I don't think they can ignore it going forward. No. Okay, Cam, we've talked about this film for about an hour and a half now. I need to know, because I'm actually genuinely curious as to where you're going to come down on this film. Is Tenet making the knock list? (laughs) This may be the hardest call of any we've dealt with in this podcast, because when I watch a movie that maybe I'm conflicted about, I've watched the movie once, but I also fully grasp the movie. Like I have a real understanding, I feel, of the movie I'm talking about. Whereas, as I've said with this one, I'd love to know what, you know, uh, Cam 10 years from now thinks of Tenet. Um, Because it's so fresh, right? Like, it doesn't have a legacy at this point. It's just still a fairly new movie. And I just wonder what future viewings are going to feel like. So, in some ways, I have to fall back on my feelings towards it as a Christopher Nolan movie. Which is that I think he's done, you know better films I, I don't think this is in his top tier at all i think it falls in kind of that messier but fascinating and for me engrossing maybe frustrating for others but engrossing for me type of movie that i could watch over and over again but is it one of the great spy films it's super confusing <laughs> which i guess to be fair a lot of spy films are but i don't know my answer is right now a, a no um, it's the sort of thing like, uh, I know we've always said, uh, once we give the answer on the knock list, we can't revisit it, but I almost feel like this one deserves an asterisk next to it for like years from now. But nonetheless, my, my answer is sort of a light no that could be flipped perhaps. I don't know. Where are you coming down right now? There's been many episodes where I've been on the other side from you in terms of the knock list. And a part of me, a part of me says yes interestingly, because I think the spy stuff is quite strong, especially in the first half of the film. It's quite an interesting intrigue. You know, you've got that sort of Ian Fleming travel writer stuff going around the world, all these different, you know, spectacles and vistas. It looks great. And going undercover kind of, that's, that's really interesting. But North by Northwest just works. Yeah. Two and a bit hours. You don't have any questions at the end. You're like, yep. Wraps up fine. I mean, what else have we got in the knock list? Give me a couple of, uh, of films. The Ipcris file. The story works. Yeah. It didn't work for me, but it the, works. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hannah is in the list. Um, Three Days of the Condor. Um, From Russia with Love, Dr. No and Goldeneye are on the list as well. All so. fairly easy to understand, not particularly convoluted spy stories. Some of them have more intrigue than others. From Russia with Love's quite a long and winding road of a plot but it makes sense, even on the first viewing. And I think that's what pulls me away from it. And I, 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 I understand what you say about the Asterix. I get it. Maybe we can talk about this at our wrap-up show and just, you know, the end of the year. And if our feelings have changed on a rewatch, I'm sure I'll watch it again between now and then. But I think it has to be, I know, because it's just such a messy film that you have to watch so many times to just about get to grips with. And I don't think people should have to watch 
a film three times in a row to go, ah, I've got it. It's too much. Yeah, and I also I also feel like letting this movie onto the knock list is also me excusing a lot of things that I wouldn't that I would hold against another movie. Um, things we've talked about, the audio issues are you know obviously a big part of the problem. Um, the <laughs> crushing exposition of the movie that often is just scenes of characters just standing there giving exposition. Um, and look, a lot of spy movies do that, but a lot of them do it in a way where you're actually on board with what's going on as opposed to being confused. But also, um, you know, we talked about, you know, the entire finale of the movie, that messy, messy action scene that is just kind of baffling. It doesn't give you the satisfaction you want in a finale. So like what I would be inducting it for is the direction of the movie. You know, Nolan's vision is pretty much unparalleled at this point in so many ways when it comes to blockbuster film. Um, I would be laying in for the scale, the performances, just the fact that this is a astonishing looking movie. But in terms of, you know, as you said, the protagonist himself is not a super interesting character. Um, it would fall more in terms of just an appreciation of Nolan as a whole versus the individual product. And I don't think that's right, because I think if I'm going to start doing that, then suddenly I'm inducting movies that I don't think are very good just because I think the director is a genius. And there are Hitchcock movies in the future that I don't really like. And uh, I'm not letting them in because they're directed incredibly well. And I think that, you know, no one shoots visuals better than Hitchcock. That's not fair. And so I think I have to come down as a no for Tenant, even though it's a movie that, again, I admire, I'm engrossed by, I want to watch again, but I want to watch it more and more because it's almost like a problem or a puzzle that I'm intent on solving, which is entirely me. That is not something I would recommend to the larger whole. And I think with the knock list, we're saying, everyone, watch these movies. These are spy films that are going to grab you. Tenants one, I would not recommend to a lot of people. No, I, I echo that. I was going to say the same thing. You know, some of our knocklist films, North by Northwest is the one I went back to. If someone has never seen a spy film, I put them down and they've watched that and be like, okay, I get spy films. You're not going to get spy films from this. This is not a good example of a spy film. Yeah, it's, it, well, it's kind of a whole other beast unto itself. And it's one that I think anyone who's tuning in, you know, say someone who just stumbles across the knocklist on Letterboxd without having listened to the podcast, for example, and they go, okay, well, these are clearly movies I should be watching, I guess. Um, okay, well, I'll watch, you know, North by Northwest and I'll watch Ipcris File. And then like you get to this and it's like, huh? Like this wasn't what I wanted from a spy film. So it, to me, this is a movie that feels, I mean, I almost admire how individual it is and in that it's a movie aimed at a very specific segment of an audience. And it is done on a huge scale on a massive budget. Like you don't get blockbuster films that do that. So I kind of admire it for that. But just because I fall in the um, the demographic of people who are going to be compelled to revisit it over and over again, doesn't give it a pass for, I think, a lot of other people. But I would say watch it and pay to watch it. If it comes out in cinema again when COVID's buggered off, go see it in the cinema. I think it helps. Watch it again. Buy a Blu-ray. You know, let's let's really help the film industry here because I think this film deserves a better box office than it got, I would say. But it has its flaws. Is it the most flawed Christopher Nolan movie? I haven't seen all of his work, so I really couldn't comment, I'd say. Okay. Okay. Which uh, Do you know which ones haven't you seen? You mentioned two earlier that I hadn't seen. Insomnia and Following? Mm. Okay. Well, those are earlier ones, and they're also very simple. So I, I would almost just push those aside. Um, when you look at sort of the more the big blockbuster ones, you know, you've seen the Dark Knight trilogy, you've seen Inception, Interstellar. 
Dunkirk. Um, you know, do you feel like uh, those are much cleaner films than this one? I think Interstellar has trouble. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's probably the one that I think has um, maybe the most of the group, although I think it's still more concise than this film. But he's shown, he, he did Dunkirk afterwards, he's shown he can still do relatable characters in an interesting story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's two no's from us, and as such, Tenet is not making the knock list. Before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from the guys over at the Film Rage podcast. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage, where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming, and classic films as well. Directors and actors, beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it that you always talk all the time? I can't understand I why this, this, voice voice. this is the merman, the voice of reason. These two can't agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are mondo, some are just Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel the rage. Yep, that is the film rage. That is three guys bringing the rage to the films that are out today. They go back and they come out with current films as well. I'm sure they've tackled Tenet at some point, And I'd be really keen to hear what they think about this film too. So that's Film Rage, available on all major podcast apps. And they're big supporters of Spy Hards, and we always appreciate that a lot. And uh, we extend our um, support of them back. So check out the Film Rage podcast. Absolutely. Well, Cam, uh, our temporal pincer movement is complete. What are we doing next week? Um, Christopher Nolan's a big Bond guy, right? I think so. And yeah, uh, yeah, Talia Ghul had a uh, reveal in The Dark Knight Rises that he may have taken from a certain James Bond movie that we're going to tackle next time, and that is The World Is Not Enough. Oh boy, we are back. Hashtag Team Brozza. I can't wait. Strap myself into that torture chair and watch The World Is Not Enough. I'm gritting my chin in uh, anticipation. <laughs> Fair enough. So that's it. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch The World Is Not Enough and join us next week. Uh, the knock list you, of course, can find on letterbox.com forward slash spyhards. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners. We live in a twilight world and there are no friends at dusk.